Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Is what Paul McPhee always says. Well, how about news is over before you know it? I'm not ready. It's one of these, one of these days. I, I feel ready for the show, but I don't feel ready for the show. Let's see where this goes. Producer Pauly, in with you on Kitchener today, once again today from noon till three in the first half hour of every Monday episode. Mike Farwell joins me for Between Two Hosts. Let me just carry over a, a moment longer what we just finished on the Mike Farwell show this morning with Rant or Rave, because I, I have to get this off my chest. And just before I get it off my chest, I never feel ready for the show. Like, not one day yeah. do I turn on the microphone and say I'm perfectly ready for this, because, I don't know, it's like it's like walking on the high wire. I just hope I don't fall off. And if I do fall off, I sure as hell hope the net is in place down below. Yeah, and, and after... Doing this for four days last week and one more day today, I have bigger respect for what you do. So speaking of the four days last week and now the one day here, what is that nonsense that we just heard to start the show? I complained about it immediately before we turned on the mics. You said, well, it was Brittany's choice. First it of was. all, well, do, I don't see Brittany here. Well, she's not feeling well. And then you said, well, we have to keep the tradition. There is not a tradition in the world that was started four days ago. That's not a tradition. <laughs> It was an idea. You floated it. It stunk. Oh. Get rid of it. Well, I, no, she doesn't it's get not a, terrible. It, I'll give you that. It's not terrible. It's also not great. It's not even good. Not terrible is not what I would use as the slogan for the music to start the show. <laughs> well, it's not terrible. Yeah, it's not good either. And again, it may have been Britney's idea. She needs to be here to support it. Yeah, but it's listen. The original idea is that Britney and I were going to co-host for a week. Yep. And even though she's not here for the last few days, I still... She would have been here had she not been here. Who was the quarterback that got hurt before Tom Brady took over and became the greatest quarterback of all time? Was it Drew Bledsoe? Or was there somebody in there like for one game or Uh, something? This is is my point. Who cares? Nobody cares anymore. You're saying I'm Tom Brady? I'm saying that Britney's choice doesn't matter anymore. You get to pick the music. Gosh, darn it. It's too late now. Yeah, it is. Okay, I got got some thoughts about this, Paul. I'll tell you that. Hey, (laughs) before I tell you what's on the show, speaking of too late, I this there's a call on the line. It's been there according to this timer for eight minutes and thirty three seconds. That's a patient human. Is this a leftover from rant or rave? What I think there was Tom still on the line, but we we ran out. We were done. All right, let's let's see what's going on. Tom, what do you want? (laughs) How's that for a start? Where's Brian when you need him? Hey, listen, I'll tell you where Brian is. He's stuck in traffic on the 401 right now. Yeah. Is he? Sucker. I'm just going to ask you guys, what do you think of all this uh, Ukrainian uh, stuff? Let's, let's hear your opinion, how good you guys are. <laughs> Paulie, do you want to start? I, I, obviously, the invasion of Ukraine is, is 
not a good thing. I wish it wasn't happening. I'm not that uh, versed in foreign relations, but it seems to me you shouldn't be invading another country. <laughs> I don't know. I... Maybe I'm at. wrong. I think Vladimir Putin has a very interesting outlook on the world and, and how he thinks it is uh, geographically composed currently. And I feel... So you don't blame the NATO or Biden or for any any reason? Well, I, I, I haven't gone that far yet. I will say this about NATO. Uh, never thought it had much in the way of uh, incisors. Fancy word yeah. for teeth. And I think we're seeing that play out right now. Well, I think... Uh, what you did was surround Russia. And why is it so important that you have a base there in Ukraine? I mean, you've surrounded this guy with Latvia and all those others, Estonia. Uh, I mean, it's only so far you can push. Can you imagine that if uh, Russia would have a base in Canada, Hawaii, Mexico, they um, Americans wouldn't do anything? So, I mean, why are you pushing this? Nothing has happened. What do you mean nothing has happened? I can, see, I can see Biden because U.S. has to go to war every three, four years because this is how they sell their weapons. And you have to take a different, just look stuff from the other side. For example, the president, he was a comedian. Who, and Trump? He wanted to make peace no, with the president Russia. of Ukraine. And then Biden came in, and you buy these guys in the third world countries, like the ex-communist countries, you just go in, you buy them, they're all corrupt. Okay, so Tom, let me, let me just get straight what you're saying here. Basically what you're saying is you don't blame Vladimir Putin for reacting to being surrounded. That's your take here. Well, I'm... No, I'm no, I, saying, be, I, want, I want you to be no, really no, clear I, about this, because you're talking in a lot of circles. You. It's not that I'm don't blame him, but you also have to blame what is so important that you have to have. So Tom is on Team Russia. Do I have? To, do I, you're on Team Russia. No, no, I'm not on. It's got nothing to See, do. See, Tom you, called actually. last week and said some of the same things, and that's the impression I got. No, I, I'm well, saying, you got to be clear okay, then, it, Tom. You got to be really it's clear wrong, here. But I mean, you're cornering the guy, and I'm saying right. So you don't blame him for striking back. What? This is what you're telling us, Tom. The guy is thinking it's bad because now Ukraine is stopping all the men and they're sending them to die. And this didn't have to. All NATO had to do is stand up and say, look, we don't need this as a base. We don't need this as a base. Sure, we don't need this as a base. And then Putin will just stroll right in. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what's so important to NATO? Ukraine, you tell me, what is the important? The important is that now they're selling all kinds of weapons and they're killing the Ukrainians. And some of the blame has to go to, most of it has to go to Biden and NATO for killing. And, of course, number one is Putin. I don't understand what, where Tom is coming me from. Me either. I, I don't think, I think Tom is being deliberately opaque. Yeah, I, I can't figure it out. Are, are we sticking with this now? Because we've got two other calls on the line. I had You're something else. Book. I had something fun. Welcome. For us to talk about. What? See, remember what I said just as we started? I never feel prepared enough. And then I just start the show and hope I don't fall off the highway. Yeah. Here you are, pal. All right. The best let's... laid plans. <laughs> okay, the phone lines are ringing. You can change, you can change the course all you want. It's up to you. All You're right. in charge. Billy. 
<laughs> You're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, listen, I just I just have to say something historically. Uh, the, the, the real difference is that uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania had to join NATO because uh, people remember in 39 when they were independent countries, uh, I think it was 39 or 40, the Soviet Union just took them over, you know, after they signed the Hitler-Stalin pact. And uh, they never wanted to be taken over by uh, the Soviet Union and or now by Russia. And uh, they they needed to have an alliance, and I I don't think it's a toothless alliance. Uh, I I was a I was a NATO soldier. Uh, I think NATO did its job during the Cold War. It ex- it expanded into what was the Warsaw Pact and a little. Does it? I'm sorry, Billy, but does it still do its job? I, I'm with you there, and, and I think that's a really good historical example. But is NATO still doing its job today? Is it still effective uh, today? I think, I, I think what's going to happen is that uh, uh, if, uh, if now I've, I hear China is not too, too happy with the situation in Ukraine, but if, if, uh, if, if the leader of Russia, whether it's Putin or somebody else, forms a continental alliance with China, the, the, the only uh, balance of power uh, alliance against them will be NATO, made up of North American and European countries. Uh, you know, balance of power, unfortunately, is important. It's not just about weapons. It's about, uh, it's about uh, the kind of uh, government that you want. And the other side, evidently, will be authoritarian. We will be, for better or for worse, uh, democracies. All right, Billy, thanks for the call. I think we're going to get it. This is, this is going to be a real this test of NATO, for yeah. sure. Joe, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, you know what? I mean, not the last caller, but the one before him. I mean, someone needs to educate this individual about what's really going on. I mean, Putin is a monster. He's just trying to make a land grab, you know? And, uh, you know, to blame Joe Biden and everybody else. Come on. Uh, I mean... <clears throat> Putin needs to be stopped. The last guy that tried to go into a country or a bunch of countries was Adolf Hitler. Do we want another guy like this in a modern 2022? And I know NATO can't just walk in there and and start shooting away because that could create a world war. So I don't know the answers on that front, but I'll tell you one thing. Putin is a monster and he needs to be stopped, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, guys. Yeah, because if he takes over um, Ukraine, I mean, what's is he going to do? Poland next? You know, I think it's I mean, a question you have to ask. Russia's already, you know, pretty big. So I mean, it's, it's, I wonder. I wonder if it's you know the um, there's a lot of you know fertile land in Ukraine, and I'm sure Russia wants to use that for its you know economy and, isn't, and isn't world Putin power. The same guy that that changed the way governments or elections worked in Russia so that he can remain president forever? Well, he's, I don't know what rules he changed, but I know I was I didn't watch the whole thing, but I saw a bit of a YouTube video over the weekend of a, a woman who is, I think, used to, either used to live in Russia or is very familiar with, and it's extremely difficult because people are wondering, why don't you just vote him out? Well, they've arranged it, I think. Is he the only candidate on the ballot? Or yeah, see, a, there, there was a change not too long ago that essentially assured him maintaining the presidency forever it's bizarre he's been the president for what 20 years something like that at least yeah lorraine go ahead oh hi i just agree with a, your, your previous caller but on a lighter note i want to comment on the music and i did like it and i think it's nice to have a variety 
I like, I've heard music there that I've never heard before. Now listen here. It's interesting. Lorraine, aren't you the same person that told me that the music for my show was just noise, that infernal racket? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Paula, you should have hung up on her a lot yeah, sooner than they, that, but anyway. Thanks, Lorraine. And speaking of the music, Brittany is listening, and she says in big, bold letters, the music stays. Of course it does. You All get right. a vote when you come to work. That's my final answer. Okay. 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 Did, we, we were talking on your show this morning about the weather. Did yes. Kitchener Cooney end up calling? He, he didn't, but he sent me an email, or it was a text. Either way, Cooney did touch base. And said he is in the process of calculating the amounts, the snowfall amounts for well, this year. I said the answer, no matter what he comes up with, is too much. But well, he's I'll on the line know. now. Oh, well, Cooney, have hey, those have those you? good? Have those calculations been done yet? Yeah, I already did them for you. The answer is too much. <laughs> oh no, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I totaled it up, and uh, like I say, it's a different topic than uh, you know what's going on uh, with uh, with the you know Ukraine, and I feel for those people. Uh, uh, big time. My total snowfall amount here, I just looked it up, up from my uh, volunteer station, is about 162 centimeters so far. That goes back to November 1st. Now, I'm not too far from the uh, weather station at um, the airport, and they uh, kept snowfall amounts till I think, 2017. They don't do them anymore, so I'm sort of like what's called a proxy. But mm-hmm. their average amount from uh, to the end of February is about 125.6 centimeters. So, Paulie, you were right. Like, that's 30% more. Yeah, see, I'm not yeah. crazy. Yeah. Because no, normally I might, nor, like, big snowfalls, I have to go out there and really scoop it up maybe three, maybe four times a year. And this year, I swear I've been out there eight or nine times already. Well, yeah, there's, it's uh, January, well, even December we had some decent snow where there was, you know, miles it would melt. But January, February, we've been getting, you know, one system after the other. And some, you know, a lot of them are small, a few centimeters, two or three, like the one that's coming in tonight. I might get a little bit, but it's uh, one after the other. And when it's cold, it doesn't melt. So you got to shovel. Mm-hmm. Too. I've been shoveling, uh, been getting some good upper body workouts uh, many times this winter, even after a regular workout. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was going to say, Cooney. You're in shape. You jog, you shovel. Like you're, you're like Superman. No, I don't want Superman, but I am one of those over 40-year-old males that you were referring to here that calls in, you know, so uh, <laughs> hopefully we hear, we will hear from more women as well. Yeah, we got Lorraine a second to go. We need to keep them coming. <laughs> Sherry, Lorraine, Vivian, Marsha. And just to remind you, uh, like I say, I would call this above normal snowfall. It's certainly, uh, you know, enhanced. We get this, be- we've had this before. And uh, looking into March and April, the average snowfall here for March is about 26 centimeters. The average snowfall for April is about seven. So uh, we're not done yet, but when I looked ahead, we're big swings. So if we get through this March with uh, little or no snow, I'll be shocked. Uh, we usually get some, but we are seeing big temperature swings. I looked at the charts, and I'm again seeing attempts at 10 degrees on some of the warmest days, maybe even more. So uh, the seasons are battling. That's the, that's the good thing. We're starting to get you know, winter, spring, winter, spring, back and forth. Spring, winter, which one will win the battle? I love it when Polly yeah. pulls out the promo yeah, voice. Right. Okay, so this this is what I originally had planned, and we only got a few minutes left. But I saw, I was on Reddit this morning. I always talk about lots of interesting things. I should try that as a prep site. Yeah. Somebody asked, what is your current favorite ch- children's TV show? I guess for people who had kids. I'm like, I don't like any of them. So I 
I've turned that around a little bit. What was your favorite television show when you were a kid, when you were growing up? And if you want to take a couple of calls, we have time for those. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570 hands-free. So do you mean, like, my... What did you watch growing up? Yeah, what did you watch growing up? Okay, yeah, because, I mean, when you first mentioned this, I thought Dukes of Hazzard, but I was, like, a teenager by then. So as a kid show, what was it called? Like, The Great Space Coaster? Something like that? I seem to recall the song. I've never even heard of that It's the Great Space Coaster. Come on board. It's the Great Space Coaster. That reminds me. I didn't even have this on my list. There was a cartoon. It was, I think it was a Korean cartoon called The Little Prince. Don't recall It was on TVO. And the premise of it was that this this little kid, this little prince, every every episode grabs has this big net and he's able to to hook a comet and come to Earth, have an adventure, and then hook a comet and go back. And at the end of every episode, they used to say, you know, if uh, I can't remember the name of the planet, but if you see a red dot in the sky, that's the little prince. Of course, it's Mars, but I uh, like it. That was really cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. But the, the, anyway, I just. Thought of that. Um, when I was little, did you watch Hammy Hamster? I never got into Hammy Hamster. It was around when I was a kid. That was my first favorite television show when I was like five years old. How about the one with uh, David and Goliath? I think it was called. It was it was like uh, uh, the, like claymation. Claymation. No, David I, and Goliath. I, yeah. I used to like Hercules. Hercules. I never got into that one either. But again, and, and at the same think, time, I think that cartoon was originally around in like the fifties or the sixties, but they reran it for sure. On television in the 80s. All right, we got a couple of calls on the line here. Beth, go ahead. Good morning. Actually, good afternoon. Sorry, guys. Good afternoon. Um, as a kid, it's obviously it started with Sesame Street. Yeah, nice. Um, I do remember um, the tagline used to go, and you guys might remember it. Look, look up, look way up. Oh, the little giant, the, 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 the giant, the, the friendly giant. Nice one, yeah. yeah. And then I remember um, older, probably like nine, ten years old, it was Little House on the Prairie. Okay. And then the TV schedule at our house probably went, like it was the news, so we were in Toronto at the time, so it was uh, CFTO. Mm -hmm. And then it went Little House on the Prairie, and then after that it was MASH, and then it went All in the Family, and then it was time for bed. I, All right. Yeah, we were both. We, Beth and I must be roughly the same vintage. TV was our life. It mm-hmm. was like the babysitter. All right, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to tell you what's coming up on the show next. This, this half a, this half hour is flowing by. It's and easy. This, You're welcome. Hardly any of this is anything about what I had planned. Welcome to hosting a talk show. There we show. go. This is Kitchener today on City News 570. Producer Paulie filling in. I just ate my entire lunch during that commercial break. I would like to point out that I didn't love having to witness it, but it was impressive. (laughs) That was impressive. The fork-to-mouth ratio, the speed, (laughs) impressive. Like, move over uh, Joey Chestnut. Here comes producer Paul. Oh, the hot dog guy. Yeah. So lots of things coming up on the show today. Um, Peter Wollstonecroft will be here, and you mentioned his name on your show yeah, earlier. Don't mention to him again what I did that time I rejected my ballot during a provincial election. Was Peter he? is very upset with me about that, but he still comes on my show and we <laughs> talk, and I like him nice. a lot. But yeah, don't mention it because it just gets him upset with me. So I had a uh, an epiphany or a thought on Saturday morning, and I thought Wollstonecroft might be someone who could work his way th- uh, through it. Yeah. 
there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, between conservatives and liberals, particularly like we saw during the trucker convoy. Oh, well, well, freedom. All they care about is their freedom. But anyway, so we're going to talk to uh, Wollstonecroft, Peter Wollstonecroft about that and see if he can maybe bring the two sides. Like, why do people think the way they do? I think it's a great topic. And just it goes back to when I brought Peter's name up on my show this morning. I'm I'm really tired of absolutisms, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're a conservative, so you're painted with this broad right. brush. You're yep. a liberal, you're painted with this broad. Exactly. Stop it. And then if you want to, if you want to get some common ground, stop painting with the broad brush. Stop the absolutism. Exactly. So that's coming up, and a lot more here on Kitchener today. Producer Polly filling in. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Producer Polly filling in again today from noon till 3. Well, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his Labour Minister are expected to announce plans for a new legislation that will extend the $15 minimum wage to gig workers and, uh, you know, such as uh, Uber drivers. And joining us now to discuss more about that is our Queen's Park reporter, Richard Southern. Richard, how are you this afternoon? Paul, I'm good. You're, you're filling in, but you sound like you've been doing this forever. So uh, my hat's off to you, producer Polly. Thank you very much. Um, now, this has this announcement occurred yet? I, I thought I heard it was supposed yeah. to happen this morning, but then I haven't seen anything about it. I was uh, there with the Premier about an hour ago. Um, he and his Labour Minister, Paul, were at what they call a ghost kitchen in downtown Toronto, right. uh, that being, you know, one of these uh, facilities that uh, creates food just to be delivered. So, you know, the, it was, this was a, uh, an announcement about the gig economy, so that I guess the, the ghost kitchen was an appropriate place. So I was there. I actually talked to the Premier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I asked him, Paul? You know what I asked the Premier today? What'd you ask him? I said, yeah, this is like the latest in, like, pro-worker announcements. We've seen mm-hmm. a number of them, right, the government. They, uh, the other month they said we're going to give... Uh, health and dental benefits to the gig workers. They're mandating it so truck drivers can use washrooms wherever they want. I asked the premier, I said, hold on a minute. Have you awoken your inner liberal here? <laughs> this is uh, this is not, uh, these are not very conservative type of policies. But the, the premier said, hey, listen, I, I don't like uh, these political stripes. I quote, I just do what the people need done is how Ford answered that question. I'm sure there's some speculation, though, that, you know, this this announcement, the timing of this announcement is a little bit interesting because, of course, we have an election coming up in just a few months. Do you, do you feel that this is an election, you know, campaign issue? Anything, Paul, anything that comes from the premier's office now is a campaign issue. We're 14 weeks ahead of the vote, 100 uh, percent. We saw the uh, the campaign language instituted today uh, that we've heard for some time now in that the premier says, where are the government saying yes? We're saying yes to workers. The opposition, he contends, is saying no. Uh, it's that type of campaign slogan that they're rolling out every time. 100 uh, percent. This is going to be an issue they're going to run on. They're going to run on this pro-worker uh, front in an attempt, I believe, to take uh, more votes away from the NDP and perhaps the Liberals as well. Yes, this is a this is a, a move uh, intended uh, purely for the campaign. Uh, they'll say, yeah, we want to help workers, and I'll I'll take them at their word. But obviously, it's a campaign style announcement. So this announcement is uh, going to affect what they're saying: digital platform workers. What does that cover? 
Now, this is anyone that uh, receives a, a job via a, an, an app. Uh, but primarily, we're talking about, you know, uh, Instacart, if you get your groceries delivered. We're talking about those workers. We're talking about Uber drivers and Uber Eats delivery drivers and uh, DoorDash and, and the like. And it, it's not just the minimum wage. This legislation, which is going to be tabled uh, this afternoon, will also um, mandate that these companies need to, in written form, tell workers, Paul, how their pay is calculated exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what factors are used to determine whether or not they're offered assignments. And we'll also um, mandate that any disputes they have be resolved in Ontario. We've actually heard a few stories about these gig workers flying off to uh, other locations to, to deal with disputes in courts. They're, they're changing mm-hmm. that as well. So how does the system work currently? Obviously, this act is being introduced because gig workers are not currently subject to a minimum wage. Uh, they're not, but there is a, a, something we haven't talked about. There's a very big uh, point to be made here. Uh, this legislation will only pay these workers a $15 minimum wage call when they're actually on a delivery or they're driving you. They have, you have to be active in a, in a call. Right. Um, so if you're driving in between or you're driving to pick up and all this, you're not getting your minimum wage for that. It's what they call active hours. Now, Uber tells me drivers on average in Canada – uh, they already make thirty-one dollars uh, per hour when they're active, when they're on a call. Mm-hmm. So the argument from the other side is, well, they really need to be paid for the hours that they're not uh, active in a call. This doesn't address that. So why only active hours then? I, I think there's there's be some difficulty in in people could uh, driver for instance could log on and sit there and take the minimum wage and not actually go out and attempt to. Uh, get any orders, I suppose, is an argument you, you could make about that. Um, you know, the government isn't changing the language to describe these workers. You know, the, the temporary aspect of that, that language isn't isn't being changed. So I think, you know, you, you'd be getting into the weeds trying to uh, trying to do it outside of the active hours, and that's not something the government got into. I, I asked the labor minister, why not pay outside of the active hours? And he said, well, Richard, this is just the beginning. We're, 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 this is the beginning of what we want to do. Now, so did you say that Currently, active hours, Uber drivers during those active hours would make $30 an hour? This is what Uber says. So, would this, if that is true, would this even have an impact, do you think? Yeah, that's true. It's not going to have a very big impact, no. Um, but, I mean, the Labor Minister says to me, hey, Richard, we think the gig workers are going to be better off with this than they were before this. So that's the that's the government's argument on this right now. Now, in, I was reading the article on uh, citynews.ca that you wrote. Is it true that Uber, that there's a rumor that Uber had sent a letter to Monty McNaughton actually supporting this? Is that right? And he denied uh, Uber it? Or has, did... uh, Uber has confirmed this to me. Not only did they write a letter to the labor minister saying, we want this to happen. They said, we want you to mandate an $18 minimum wage for our drivers to account for the non-active hours. Um, I asked the labor minister about this, Mr. McNaughton, and he said, well, listen, I'm not doing what Uber wants to do, so he says. I'm doing what, what we think is right. And on that $18 point, he says, well, if they want to pay their workers more, they can. So they, they didn't want to budge the government on that. But yes, interesting enough, Uber actually wants the government to go further than what what they announced today, mm-hmm. Paul. Now, if um, if this does lead to 
more costs for you know the gig economy for the companies. Are are you, are you worried that maybe the costs will end up being put on to the end user in the uh, at the in the long run? No question about it. I think that's certainly a possibility. We, we've seen these services cost more and more. Uh, any regular user of Uber will tell you that, you know, it used to be very cheap to get a ride, and now it's kind of getting back to where taxis were. I mean, the prices have gone up as these services have matured. It's reasonable to believe uh, that some of these costs could uh, could be passed on to the consumer. So many other companies are doing that now with inflation happening in all different sectors, Paul. So with, you know, introducing a new piece of, you know, government legislation with the debating process and all that, what kind of timeline are we looking for? Like this will become law before the election, I assume. Yes, the the government says it should. Uh, It's going to be tabled today. And, um, you know, if they're not going to time allocate it, that's a a measure they can use to speed uh, legislation through the the legislature. I'm not sure if they're going to time allocate this or not, but uh, it's conceivable in the next few months that this could be proclaimed into law, uh, perhaps before the election, and uh, that's when the minimum wage will be uh, mandated for these gig workers. So again, election playing into this, it'll be something I'm sure you'll hear about on the campaign trail. The premier will say, hey, not only did I hike the minimum wage to 15 bucks, after you remember he canceled that. When he yeah, he wanted office, to keep right? it at 14, yeah. Yeah, well, oh, he had to in, in the new year. We talked to uh, MPP uh, Kathleen Wynne, the former premier today, Paul, in the legislature. And she says, well, I'm, I'm glad this is happening, but uh, these workers have missed out on that minimum wage that I was going to bring in. And mm-hmm. it, it should be higher than $15. She says, now, 15 now is not what $15 was in 2019. So definitely not. The, the opposition are saying, Paul. Richard, thanks very much for your time today. You're a pro, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you, our own uh, Queens Park reporter, Richard Southern. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious. I guess on a couple of things at five one nine five seventy twenty five forty five, out of town one eight hundred five seventy fifty seven fifteen, and star five seventy hands free. So I'm interested in a couple of things here. Obviously, you know, what do you think of this? Pretty straightforward. And I'm, I would also be curious to hear from, and you know, we have a lot of people out there who listen throughout the day as they're driving around. And maybe you are a gig worker yourself. So more, I'd be really interested to hear from those gig workers, the Ubers or the Lyfts or, you know, Skip the Dishes, I think, you know, would be, you know, covered under this. How do you feel about this? And are, what is it like being... A gig worker. You know, I, I, I thought about it myself to, you know, a little bit of, you know, extra income on the side. I, you know, I work here at the radio station full time, wouldn't want it to be full time, but a little bit of extra money on the side. I mean, how is it? Do, specifically, if you're a gig worker, do you support this? 519-570-2545 out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570 hands free. And now here's a guy who drives around all day and listens to us. Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, and I well, I guess I, I technically I guess I'm a gig worker because every time I not I don't have packages in the car or the truck or um, skids, I don't get paid, right? But I'm just curious if we're going to Uber here or Lyft or Skip the Dishes um, and they want to imply a minimum wage, then why wouldn't that make them a full-time employee then? 
so if they're working for me, let's say they want, um, you know, they want to get the paid the minimum wage, then you're under my time, you're under my watch. Mm-hmm. So instead of getting paid, you know, you're not you're only you're not getting paid from the time you're driving around. You're only getting paid, you know, when you want to work and all that stuff. Well, not if you're going minimum wage and you want the you want the full hours, then I'm sorry, but if you're gonna if I'm you're gonna work for me and you work, let's say seven to four, mm-hmm. you get that one hour of lunch. That's it. Well, that's you it. Know? Yeah, and it's interesting because I did actually at one point look into skip the dishes and I even went through the interview process and okay. so they were talking about like on their website or and you know in the interview it's like you know you're, like what shifts are you available to work you know you, you know seven to ten weeknights or something and so you would think that you know that hourly wage would would be in effect the entire time even if you're not driving food around right because my shift is seven to ten. You right. Know? So then, wouldn't you be? Then, then technically, you'd be a full-time employee for Uber or Lyft or something. Right. Correct? So that's where I'm kind of confused about. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's you can make. I mean, a lot. Of, I'm not part of Lyft or Gig or any of those places. Mm-hmm. But like, just the way I run my business, you could, you know, in, a, in an hour, or so you can make some pretty good money, right? So I would, I would start maybe stay away from it. But that's just, you know, right. <laughs> that's just me. All, All right. right. Thanks, Polly. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, it, it's. It, it, it's an interesting scenario, right? I mean, you know, some people think, you know, everybody should be uh, subject to the same rules regardless of whether they are, you know, a full-time employee or, you know, a contract employee, which I think, you know, these these gig workers technically are considered contract. And so the, you know, the working conditions, the contract that you work under is slightly Different. So here's the deal. Uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his Labour Minister have announced plans for new legislation that will extend the $15 minimum wage, which we now hear, have here in Ontario, went into effect, I think, a couple of months ago, if I remember uh, correctly. But it will extend that $15 minimum wage to gig workers, your Ubers, your Lyft, uh, skip the dishes. And what's the other food delivery one? Uh, well, Uber Eats, you have Uber Eats. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. Sam, go ahead. Hi, how's it going? Good. What do you think about the uh, $15 minimum wage applying to gig workers now? Well, I think it's a crock of baloney, first of all. Um, so, like, I'm a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. So, what am I supposed to say? That my company's supposed to give me a guaranteed $15 an hour? It's based on the commission. It's based on how busy you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just be st- sitting at home and being parked. you got to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, calling it a gig. Uh, first of all, like as a taxi driver, this we don't do this as a gig. This isn't like when they came, when Uber came in and introduced themselves as a ride share, mm-hmm. and now they're calling it a gig, have they forgotten the people who work? Like, it's their bread and butter, and, and they do this, like, 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. To call it a gig is actually insulting. Because these other people uh, that might might be doing Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes or anything like that, those guys probably have a full-time job and treat it as a gig. Right. Meanwhile, as us cab drivers, it's that's our that's our bread and butter. It's this full-time, a yeah. It's a serious job. Yeah, it, the, the interesting point, Sam. I'd be curious to know how many of these, you know, again, gig workers uh, are doing the job full-time. 
It, yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, what I found interesting, I was, I was really surprised when our, our interview with Richard. Now, according to Uber, during the active hours that they're working, so if you, if you actually have somebody in your car or you're or for the food delivery things, you're, you're, you know, you're actively delivering food, you make $30 an hour. Now, the active hours is all we're talking about right now in terms of the minimum wage. So I found it. So everybody, everybody's talking about active hours. You know, the, the actual time that you are working, you're actually performing a task, driving somebody around whatnot. So Uber claims that $30 an hour is the current rate for active hours. And the, the Ford government is saying, well, you got to be paid 15. So if, if what Uber says is true, they're already making double what Ford wants them to make. So I wonder if this will even have an impact on the way things work currently. I also found it interesting that Uber supports this move. Now, I I wonder if maybe, because sometimes you see this. I remember a couple of years ago, somewhere in the United States, Walmart sent a letter to, again, I can't remember, it was some government department. It might have just been in one state saying, you know, we support a $15 minimum wage. You should, you know, you should mandate a $15 minimum wage. And it's like, well, if Walmart favors a $15 minimum wage, how come they're just not paying their workers that now? And the the little secret, I, I, I just, not, not a secret, but it could be because, you know, obviously Uber is the big name, the biggest name in ride sharing. And Walmart is one of the bigger names in retail. I wonder if they're asking for this mandated minimum wage because it'll make the smaller companies, it'll make it more difficult for them. Or if you want to start up your own ride share service, you know, it's not cheap to start a business of any type, ride share, retail, whatever. And so if you have a higher entry, uh, you know, barrier to entry, I, you know, it's it's more difficult to start a, a small business because maybe right off the top, maybe you couldn't afford to pay people $15 an hour. And so that's not even going to happen. So it's interesting that the businesses that can already pay it because they're already in existence, it's interesting that they are also asking for it. They support this move for a $15 minimum wage. We're going to take a break. We've got a couple of calls left or a couple of you know, few minutes left for your calls if you want to weigh in on this at 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570 hands-free. Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his Labor Minister announced this morning plans for new legislation which is expected to be introduced later this afternoon at Queen's Park that will extend our existing $15 minimum wage to gig workers, Uber, Lyft, Skip the Dishes, etc. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570. I'm producer Polly. in with you today on Kitchener Today on City News 570.
this legislation, which is going to be tabled uh, this afternoon, will also mandate that these companies need to, in written form, tell workers, Paul, how their pay is calculated exactly, Mm -hmm. uh, what factors are used to determine whether or not they're offered assignments, and will also... um, mandate that any disputes they have be resolved in Ontario. We've actually heard a few stories about these gig workers flying off to uh, other locations to, to deal with disputes in courts. They're, they're changing mm-hmm. that. Our Queen's Park reporter Richard Southern joining us a few moments ago to discuss this new piece of legislation, which is going to be introduced to Queen's Park later today, which will uh, make the $15 minimum wage apply to gig workers, your Ubers, your Lyft. Do we even have Lyft in Waterloo Region? I have never checked. I've taken Uber a couple of times, but, you know, Uber, Lyft, uh, skip the dishes, things like that. We have time for a couple of calls, 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570. Jody, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the reason why Uber is agreeing for all this because right now they're paying them per delivery. So mm-hmm. if they're paying them $15 an hour, they're not going to get paid per delivery, obviously. So mm-hmm. Uber is more money out of it. Okay. I, I mean, I, I'm not an Uber driver or anything like that. I, I didn't know how the system works. So that's how it works. They get paid per delivery, not just active hours? No, it's paid per, per delivery. That's why I was just listening to you on the radio and it's mm-hmm. like, that's why, because usually, you know, you can get three deliveries done and you can make, you know, like the guy said, 30 bucks an hour. Well, if you work, Uber's only paying you $15 an hour, then um, you can do as many deliveries for them as, as they want. Hmm. I was unaware of that. Although I guess maybe if you're only getting paid while you're making an, uh, a delivery at that moment, maybe that is very similar to, you know, the active hours. You know, if you're a skip the dishes driver, I guess the active hours might only apply if you're delivering food from the restaurant to the customer. I don't know if an active hour would be considered if you're going from the customer back to a restaurant to pick up another order. Now, if you're interested in this sort of topic, might be interested in our 130 topic. Uh, Scott Scheinman will be here. He is a professor of sociology and a Canadian research chair. At the University of Toronto, he wrote a piece in The Conversation recently called Employees Not Only Want Better Pay, They Want Status. So that's coming up at 1.30 and lots of other things coming up until 3 o'clock here today. This is producer Polly on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Producer Polly in with you today. Well, this is one of those stories where both sports and politics have intersected, which seems to happen a lot more and more these days. I'm not a big fan of that, but... And nonetheless, that is the world we're living in. Well, Alexander Ovechkin, one of the most famous citizens of the Russian Federation, made a call for peace while speaking to reporters on Friday. Ovechkin was speaking for the first time since Russian President Vladimir Putin 
ordered an invasion of Ukraine in the early hours of Thursday morning. The 36-year-old described the situation as scary moments and said that he doesn't know yet whether his family, including his parents, wife, and young son, will remain in Russia. So, of course, Alexander Ovechkin, one of the, it might be the most dominant player in the NHL today. And, of course, he plays for the Washington Capitals. And he was asked about this after the game on Friday. Obviously, it's a hard situation. Um, you know, um, I have lots of friends in Russia and uh, Ukraine, and it's hard to see uh, the war. Like, I hope uh, soon it's going to be over and um, there's going to be uh, peace in the whole world. Do you support Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Um, like, I'm Russian, right? Um, sometimes, like, some, some, something I can control, you know, it's not in my hands. Um, how I said, like, I hope it's going to end soon and uh, it's going to be uh, peace in uh, both countries. And, uh, you know, um, I don't I don't control this one. Alex, uh, specific to uh, President Putin, you've shown your support for him in the past. You know, you have pictures. We've seen the pictures of you with him. Do you still support him as he leads this invasion of Ukraine? Well, he's uh, my president, um, but how I said, like, I'm not in politics, like, I'm an athlete. And, um, you know, um, how I said, uh, hope is everything is going to be done soon. Um, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a hard situation right now for uh, both sides. And uh, um, everything, like, how I said, everything I hope uh, is going to be end. And um, I'm not control. Uh, uh, this situation. So there was a lot of chatter on uh, online on Saturday. Uh, some people a little upset that Alexander Ovechkin just didn't come right out and condemn the whole attack. And Alexander Ovechkin is in a uh, a bit of a, an interesting situation because, of course, not only is he a hockey player from Russia, but he's he's also very close to uh, the president of Vladimir Putin. In fact, as of as of Saturday, anyway, Alexander Ovechkin's profile picture on, I think it's Instagram, was a picture of him and Vladimir Putin posing together at an event. And so Alexander Ovechkin is kind of between a rock and a hard place. Now, last week, a sports journalist named Slava Malamud appeared on Sportsnet Radio in Toronto. And uh, they had a very interesting discussion about this. Now, just keep in mind that the the clips you just heard were from Friday. This interview occurred on Thursday. So there's a few references to, you know, what do you think he's going to say, etc. But most of this conversation still holds up, uh, you know, here some four or five days later. And we're going to play that for you now. This is uh, uh, former Russian journalist Slava Malamud from our uh, sister station, Sportsnet Radio in Toronto. For years now, Slava, Alexander Ovechkin has been open in his support of Vladimir Putin. He has made no secret of his support for the Russian president. Yes, extremely so. He fronted his uh, social media campaign during the 2018 election. 
Uh, he uh, has always been very uh, vociferously pro-Putin. Uh, he has always been very proud of it. And he always tended to conflate Putin and Russia by saying, like, if you're for Putin, that means you're for Russia. Uh, he's taken pictures with him. He's, uh, they kissed each other in the locker room in Minsk in 2014 after Russia won the uh, world championship. I was there. I saw that scene. Uh, there was never any ambiguity about this. And it was not just an athlete. Uh, saying something or, you know, playing lip service to a politician who wants to do some PR with him. You know, you, you, you have seen LeBron James take smiling pictures with George W. Bush and Barack Obama, even though we probably know which one of these two presidents he liked better. With Ovechkin, that was completely different. He went out of his way to support Putin. And not only that, he went out of his way to support Putin's original invasion of Ukraine in 2014. In fact, he took part in a campaign that was meant to produce recruits for Russian, uh, for Russia-aligned forces in eastern Ukraine in 2014. And he was separately supported the annexation of Crimea. He has always been pro-Putin. He has always been pro-war. And it would be a crying shame if the media let him get away with us now after eight years of letting him get away with this and not asking him the tough questions. Well, and yeah, we'll, we'll see if there's a, a back and forth allowed. But how, and not to uh, belittle the, the, the annexation of uh, the Crimean Peninsula, but like how different is, is what has happened here in the last couple of days to, to anything that has happened um, initiated by Vladimir Putin? What happened in 2014 was easier to kind of sweep under the rug and say, well, you know, American, the American public doesn't really care about it. North American public doesn't care about it. Nobody really knows what Donbass is, what, uh, what Crimea is. It's kind of a complicated issue, even though it really wasn't. What it was was an annexation, a land grab. And then uh, basically the, uh, uh, a covert war, a hybrid war that Putin waged in Donbass uh, under the uh, pretense of this being a civil war. Uh, and uh, Ovechkin, like I said, he was very unambiguously, he called Ukrainians fascists. He supported the war. Uh, obviously, that was not in so many words. He didn't say, I support the war. He actually said, I don't want the war. But what that meant, this is how Russians actually wage their media campaign in support of this war by saying that they, they want to prevent fascism in Ukraine. Uh, and he was very much a part of that media effort and that media push. And who knows? How many young impressionable men who may, who uh, consider himself him a hero were influenced by this and went to fight in Donbass and lost their lives or killed Ukrainians? I mean, this is uh, this is something that I have been very vocal about for the last eight years, and I have been trying to get North American media to talk about, but nobody seems to be interested about this. Now there is a shooting war in Europe, the biggest shooting war in 80 years, and well. Now I think it suddenly kind of hit home for many people what this means and what his support of Putin has meant. Uh, oh, better late than never, probably, uh, is what I'm going to say. I'm just, I just think it would be a shame that he'd, if he'd be allowed to kind of get away with non-answers uh, this time.
Slava, let's dig into Vladimir Putin a little bit. Um, you and, and through the sports lens, you know, you, you reference eight years ago, and all of this was towards the tail end of the Sochi Olympics that he spent fifty billion dollars worth of public money to to stage, and in the aftermath of that, we discovered that there was an elaborate doping scheme that was going on uh, during those Sochi Olympics that that was designed to help Russian athletes win medals. Uh, TJ Quinn of ESPN back, I believe it was 2018, 2019, three, four years ago, um, they, did a, they did a piece for ESPN kind of talking about Putin and sport and, you know, how the goals in sport that Putin has had is kind of, you know, it mirrors his geopolitical goals that he wants... Power and glory at home to be elevated on the world stage, and that he used money from the Olympics and the World Cup to prop up the oligarchs who prop him up, and he pours millions of dollars into federations, uh, and and to make sure that the elected leaders of those federations are friends of his, so that he can um, have support, that he can continue to infiltrate. Tell us a little bit more about what Vladimir Putin's influence in Russian sport, uh, beyond just hockey and beyond just Ovechkin, has in in the grand scheme of where he fits in the power in that country. Well, I've been saying this for a long time. Um, I've been actually one of the things that I always try to explain to my North American colleagues because it's so different from how sports are approached in North America. In North America... Sports are their own industry. It's professional, it can be amateur, but it's supported by, it's basically, uh, sports in North America exist because fans here love them and they, and they are willing to pay good money to watch sports. And then politicians may or may not use sports to, uh, or athletes for photo ops and other opportune, opportune moments, right? In, in Russia, it has always been completely different sports were always in the in service of politics sports exist there because of politics not the other way around sports don't exist because fans love it and the rules spend lots of good money to watch them because fans in russia can't afford for the most part to pay the type of prices that for t- for tickets and merchandise that american fans can so professional sports in russia can only subside as a as a PR project for the state. And it has always been this way. It's always been, especially international sports, especially the international sports in which Russia is traditionally successful, has always been a part of Russia's foreign policy. It has always been viewed this way and in no other way. In fact, during the Soviet days, the the organization in charge of international sports was the propaganda department of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And it hasn't changed to this day. It is still a part of the foreign policy. In fact, when Russian Olympians go and compete in the Olympics, people don't say they're off to compete. They don't say they're off to play games. They say they're off to defend the honor of the motherland. This is the actual language that is used by fans, by the newspapers, by the politicians. It has always been this way. And this is why I always say that, you know, if you really want to impose sanctions on Russia that will make a lot of regular people reappraise 
their uh, how they treat Putin. Uh, you gotta kick him out of all the international competitions. No, no, no soccer, no Olympics, no World Cup. That'll get people to think. That's interesting. Uh, now you're making me think that sports are even more important than I thought they were, and I thought they were uh, kind of important, but not in, in a. <laughs> Um, a geopolitical sort of sense. Uh, Slava, if, if you had a chance to, to ask Alex uh, Ovechkin a question at his first media availability, whenever that is, maybe it's the end of the game tonight, well, what would you ask him? I won't ask him anything because we're not in speaking terms. Uh, we haven't been in eight years. Uh, he uh, was very instrumental in blacklisting me by the NHL and then lied to me, to my face about that. So, uh, but if I'm if I'm a uh, North American sports writer, uh, I would make sure he he either defends or repudiates uh, his. Uh, and, and going back to my uh, to my previous point, you know what? If Ovechkin were, were to come out right now and say, "I don't support this war. I want it to end. I think it's wrong. I don't support Putin's uh, what Putin is doing in Ukraine." That alone would be an enormous, of enormous influence to the Russian people. He will not do it. In fact, I'm challenging him to do it, but he won't. If he were to say it right now, a lot of people currently who are kind of going along with Putin's explanations would really scratch their heads and would really start thinking about maybe what we're doing out out there is not right. Mm. Uh, If he were to say that, that would be huge. But... You know, the Capitals the, the already have their lines of excuses all lined up. I mean, he's got family in there. You know, Avechkin is untouchable. His family is untouchable. He doesn't risk anything by coming out and taking a strong stance. But he won't because he, he genuinely loves Putin and he thinks what Putin does is right. Or simply because supporting Putin is personal, personally profitable to him and his family. And that's all there's to it. Is there another Russian athlete who can have close to the influence that Ovechkin has? You know, we were talking earlier, Daniil Medvedev has moved up to number one in the world in tennis. Is there another athlete in another sport, a former athlete who's uh, that, if, if they came out with that kind of strong statement that could, that could be as significant, or is Ovechkin far and away number one in Russia? No, there's nobody. Uh, soccer players are, don't have the same impact because they're not among the best in the world. Uh, Former athletes don't carry the same weight uh, because not a lot of people remember them. Uh, Ovechkin is the person with a universal name recognition. Everybody knows him, the young, the old, the people who don't even know anything about sports know him. Uh, he is the most influential person in Russian sports right now. He has the power with two or three sentences without really risking anything. Nobody is going to touch his family. Please, come on. If, if he were... If he were to do this, this would change a lot of people's minds. It might not change Putin's mind, but it will change a lot of Russian people's minds. He has that power. Whether or not he is one person who has the choice right now. A lot of people don't. A lot of people right now in Moscow go out in the streets and say two simple words or three words. In Russian, it's two. In English, it's three. No to war. And they get immediately grabbed and thrown into jail. Nobody will ever do this to Ovechkin or his family. He can do it, and he can have a lot more impact than than all of them put together have. But he won. Slava Malamud, former Russian sports journalist. 
Uh, that appearance was on Sportsnet Radio in Toronto last Thursday. You know, Alexander Ovechkin is in a very interesting situation because, of course, he, he of course he's from Russia, but he also knows Vladimir Putin personally. And Alexander Ovechkin still has family over in Russia, and 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 Putin is a very powerful man and a man that doesn't have. Uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a you know, any kind of a conscience. I, I remember also related to sports years ago. Uh, Patriots owner Robert Kraft visited Russia and had a brief encounter with Putin. And Robert Kraft was wearing one of his Super Bowl rings. And Putin says, uh, "That's a nice ring. I, what does one of those things feel like? Can I can I can I check it out?" And Robert Kraft gave. Vladimir Putin the ring to check out, and Putin walked away with it. And Robert Kraft still has never gotten that ring back. Stole the ring from Robert Kraft literally right in front of his face. This is the kind of guy that Vladimir Putin is. Got time for a couple of calls. Rush, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Holly. I liked your um, your sum up there because it, it, shows a, it shows that there is a lot more nuance than the... Uh, than that that Slava guy was was willing to give. Like we all acknowledge that Putin is a is a bad dude, mm-hmm. and yet this guy thinks that uh, you know Ovechkin's family safe even being in Russia, which is just a, a preposterous sort of thing. I I wish that I wish that the conversation around Russia and Ukraine had a lot more nuance overall. Um, the guest was talking about the 2014 situation, um, called it a, a Russian invasion. Um, I, I, I don't know that that's a, a fair or balanced summation of what happened. Like the the um, elected government was overthrown because of stalled economic negotiations, which is an odd an odd thing to begin with. Then, of course, there's also the the Donbass region that he briefly mentioned. What what he didn't mention is that the Azov Battalion, which is a special forces branch of the Ukraine military, those guys are literal Nazis, like literal white supremacists. They just had a video come out, like on their official Ukrainian military page, showing those guys dipping or coating their bullets with um, pig or pork lard. And they do that because when they shoot Muslims, they, you know, there's something to do with them going to hell because of the, the pig fat. So, like, there are bad people over there on both sides. I think Putin is, is terrible. But, but I just, whenever, whenever 100% of coverage is on one side of a thing, it just causes my spidey sense to start tingling. And, and I start wondering, what, what the heck are we not mm-hmm. hearing about and what are we missing because nothing in life nothing literally nothing is ever 100 percent one-sided well it, it and, and maybe that conversation lacked a bit of nuance but remember the the original interview did occur on a uh, a sports talk show so they don't get quite into the political aspect of this uh, as maybe as much as maybe you wanted them to. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back after this on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Coming up after the 1.30 news with Aaron Anderson, Scott Scheiman will be here. He is a professor of sociology and Canada research chair at the University of Toronto. He wrote a piece in The Conversation recently called Employees Not Only Want Better Pay, They Want 
status. That's coming up after the news. This is Kitchener Today with producer Polly on City News 570. Producer Polly in with you today until 3 o'clock. Well, over 50% of working Americans continue to be dissatisfied with their unjust incomes. They say it isn't sufficient enough to meet their family expenses. Uh, Scott Scheman wrote a column recently in The Conversation and joins us now. Scott is a professor of sociology and Canadian research chair at the University of Toronto. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, this uh, the studies cited in this piece were specifically to uh, or for Americans, but I, I would guess the same sentiment, similar sentiments would include up here in Canada, too. Yeah, I didn't do a direct comparison, at least with this particular question. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the financial strain questions um, and some of the questions about perceptions of pay fairness, yeah, they translate. I think they're a, a notch or two higher in the U.S., though. I'd have to look more closely at that. But uh, most of the findings in the U.S. do point to pretty surprising numbers on that front. Uh, Now, in that survey, 54% polled uh, in that survey by Angus Reid Global said that they felt that they weren't making enough to meet their family's monthly expenses. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so that's a question that's actually appeared in the General Social Survey, which is a highly reputable survey back in the United States going um, back to 2002. And they've asked that every four years or so. I replicate, replicated that by putting it in a, in a survey that Angus Reid fielded for me and found very similar results. I was surprised. I thought they would be higher given the talk about inflation. But the bottom line there is people just say flat out that the income from their jobs alone, their own jobs alone, aren't enough to meet their family, their family's usual expenses. And so that's where you get households where then the other person is working. And that's how the, mm-hmm. that's how the household's making ends meet. But um, it does raise the question, what if you're alone uh, and you're a sole earner in the household? Then it's quite tricky. Now, the recent trend... Uh, with the pandemic and the inflation that we've seen because of it has certainly increased the number of people who are feeling this way. But your piece suggests that that people have been feeling this way for quite a few years now. Yeah, that was really surprising to me when I dug deeper and looked back into that general social survey data. All the way back to 2002, you see that percentage of people saying they don't have enough to make ends meet um, above 50%. And again, just to be clear, that's from the income from their job alone. So it doesn't mean if you pool it with a partner or a spouse or something, then mm-hmm. then then people are more in the in the in the clear. But yeah, that that number goes back quite a ways, all the way back a couple decades now, and it's been remarkably consistent. The reason why I don't think it's higher now um, because of inflation is maybe because during the pandemic, people just were spending less. They weren't going out to dinner as much or the lockdowns mm-hmm. and so forth kept people from spending as much as they typically would. Um, so maybe that sort of acted like a countervailing force there. Now, of course, we would all like to make more money, but uh, your piece suggests that the reason that this comes down to, in some cases, 
is fairness. Many people feel that they are not being paid as much as other people, sometimes even in their own workplaces, people doing similar jobs. Yeah, that's another question that's been asked now a couple decades, and it's always been roughly about 30 to 40 percent say that they don't feel like they're getting um, as much as they deserve uh, in terms of pay. And yeah, the question does frame it as in comparison to people doing similar work as you are. And so we saw a spike in that, though. So that was the one thing that stood out where it went from about 35 percent back in 2018 to closer to 50 percent now. And so that's an interesting dynamic that we need to look at more closely. But yeah, those kinds of social comparisons are really important when it comes to pay, because if you feel underpaid, those are the very people who are going to start thinking about quitting or, you know, not maybe working as hard as uh, you'd want them to if you were the employer. Now, the title of this piece uh, says employees not only want better pay, but they want status. And so uh, what kind of status are we talking about? So status is a complicated term, but it typically means how people feel in terms of their own sense of worth or esteem or value relative to other people. And so, you know, they want the recognition, they want the rewards. Financial rewards are a big part of that. And um, so when people feel like those financial re- rewards aren't as as much as, you know, as they need or required to live, or they feel like they're getting less than they deserve, it almost is kind of a bit of a, an insult to their sense of status. And those are the kinds of things that have people thinking about, you know, uh, maybe trying to find another job. And so in the, in the scheme of the great resignation, you do hear a lot of people talking about, okay, now this is the time to maybe try to make a little bit of a move on the compensation front. And so status is just something that people feel um, in terms of their recognition or the rewards they get in the eyes of others, but it's also how you see yourself relative to others. And of course, there's that old saying that money cannot buy happiness, but a slight boost in your pay, it, it helps a little bit, right? <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, so actually we just straight out asked people questions about happiness, whether they enjoyed life, questions that you'll also see related to feeling hopeful about the future or optimistic And you see clear patterns of people who feel like their money isn't enough to make ends meet, that they're feeling like they're getting paid less than they they deserve. Those people definitely feel um, less happy. They say that they enjoy life less. And it's by a pretty substantial margin. And so money, yeah, money may not buy happiness in the way people think, but it certainly does provide some status, which in turn does help uh, in terms of getting people feeling better about their lives and more hopeful about the future. So, Scott, what is the solution to this? Uh, How do we fix this problem? (laughs) Show me the money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's that's how I end the piece, actually, is I say, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the pandemic has helped people try to think differently about the role of work in their lives and how they're seeing their relationship with their jobs. And I think... To me, the biggest thing that stands out, at least in the United States, is how durable and consistent that feeling underpaid really is and, and, the, and the actual earning um, insufficient amount. And I think compensation should be a larger part of the story. I don't think it would really take much to change that formula. I think if you ticked up compensation a bit more, certainly there are 
plenty of companies where there's space to do it. It doesn't even have to be that much to make a difference. And so I think, frankly, I'm surprised that we're not having more conversation about, you know, tick that compensation up a little bit and you'll go a long, long way to improving improving people's sense of happiness and well-being and their commitment to their job, which is ultimately what employers want. Scott, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Scott Scheman is a professor of sociology and Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto. His recent piece in the conversation called Employees Not Only Want Better Pay, But They Want Status. Be interested to hear what you have to say at 519-570-2545, out of town 1-800-570-5715, and star 570, hands free. This is Kitchener Today with me, producer Polly on City News 570. In the scheme of the great resignation, you do hear a lot of people talking about, okay, now this is the time to maybe try to make a little bit of a move on the compensation front. And so status is just something that people feel um, in terms of their recognition or the rewards they get in the eyes of others, but it's also how you see yourself relative to others. Scott Scheman joining us a few moments ago. He is a professor of sociology and Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto, joining us to discuss a piece that he recently wrote in the conversation called employees not only want better pay they want status over 50 percent of working americans continue to be dissatisfied with their unjust incomes they say it isn't sufficient to meet their family expenses and although this survey was done among americans uh, scott was saying that the sentiment in canada is fairly Similar. 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715. And star 570. Hands free. Employees not only want better pay, they want status. Paul, go ahead. Hey there, Rob. I mean, obviously we all more money, but I think one of the biggest disconnects and one of the biggest, at least for me, causes of, of discontentment um, and I've been a senior manager at a, at a company here in Cambridge, mm-hmm. is that the difference between what an a- average worker makes and what the CEO of the company makes, mm-hmm. you know? And if you look at Japan, you know, on average, I think there's something like 10 to 20 or 30 times more is what the CEO makes. But here, you know, you're looking at hundreds, if not thousands of times more, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, I worked for a company in Cambridge for a number of years. The average worker's pay was about 40000 a year. And the CEO of the company, and it was publicly traded company, it was making $40 million a year, mm-hmm. right? That's like a thousand times more than what the average worker would make. Right. And as a matter of fact, his salary was pretty much the entire salary of the Cambridge plant. And this was, this was a large Cambridge plant, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know I, I don't know. You know, you know, companies have to be uh, efficient. You know, they have to compete. But when you really look at, especially publicly traded companies, if you look at the top compensation, the top management, the top tier. It's a huge disproportion. I mean, you might look at a company that has a thousand employees and maybe 50 senior managers and their wages probably add up to more than 50% of the entire company's wages. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, and uh, to me, that that's a big uh, uh, discontentment for me that I see. Okay. Thanks for the call, Paul. You know, I, it's, you know, the CEO thing, 
is interesting because, uh, you know, obviously uh, you know, the fact that the position pays so high w- would be an indicator that it's, I don't know, maybe it's a high-stress job or it's a job that's, you know, highly in demand. And it's, you know, I guess if, if, if you know, one company isn't willing to pay that anyway, it's, it's an interesting scenario. The, the other point that Paul brings up, too, you hear from time to time, you know, oh, the CEO of, you know, a big company makes, you know, I don't know, you know, 40 times the amount of the average worker. What's in now? Obviously, I, I, I'm not familiar with the you know that trucking company in Cambridge. Obviously, that would be a a smaller operation. But you know, you hear about you know the really you know the really biggest of the corporations. And I remember I I saw I think it was a YouTube video one time a number of years ago of somebody who said, "Okay, so if you do the calculations." And you, you know, let, let's just say you get rid of the CEO. Just let's just let's just say that position is not needed, and you distribute that salary to every one of the, you know, the you know the hundred thousand employees who work at your multiple locations. When you do the math, the CEO salary, if evenly distributed to all of the, you know, all of the employers, you're talking like an extra maybe seven cents a week. So it, it one person being the scapegoat for all of the all of the issues the math doesn't always work out that way but I, I mean listen I'm not a CEO I don't know how much these people should be paid I, I I'm not a CEO I've never been in a position to pay to CEO I must be the only person on the in the planet who doesn't know what a CEO ought to be paid I don't know. <laughs> I'm not one. Joe, go ahead. Uh, hi, how are you? Good. Good, good. You know, um, I never begrudge anybody that's in higher-up jobs like that for the money that they make. You know, I mean, it's up to the companies. If they decide a guy's worth a million bucks a year, hey, more power to them, you mm-hmm. know. But um, my point that I wanted to make, going back to the middle of the pack at kind of guys like me and, and all the other workers, you know. I've, I've worked uh, for 50 years, ever since I was a student after high school. I've worked a total of about 50 years now. And I'll tell you something. You talk to most employees. It's not so much about status. Maybe it is for the guys that want to move up that ladder as quickly as possible. But most of the people, working people, blue-collar or white-collar, the one thing that they hate is when they're not appreciated by a supervisor mm-hmm. or head of a company. That That is one of the worst things. When you go into work every day and you don't feel appreciated, you don't hear a lot of thank yous or anything like that, I, I think that means more to people when you're appreciated, guys. And I'm telling you from experience. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Joe. I mean, obviously, we all want to make, you know, more money. We all want to, you know, pay raise but yeah you're right the you know the simple recognition of hey good job or you know some companies have you know the employee of the month here at our office we have something called a high five so in every staff meeting you know but a week before every staff meeting they'll send an email hey any high fives for the staff meeting and it's just a way to acknowledge people who you know go above and beyond or you know you're just you know you appreciate the the work that they do 
on a day-to-day basis. And yeah, you know, that thank you, that recognition really does go a long way. And and I agree with you. I, I feel the same way uh, around here. I, I You know, when someone notices that you're actually, you know, going above and beyond and working hard, it, it really makes your day. Walter, go ahead. Yeah, good day to you there, fella. Good day. Uh, um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, I was reading about an outfit down in Texas, and as a Christmas bonus that year, because they had such a good year, and this is a fairly large company, like hundreds of employees, they paid off the mortgages on everybody's houses. Wow! You know, uh, you know, like that actually worked for them, and uh, all and all the employees were like over the moon, obviously, because of this. And the name of the firm actually slips me right now, but um, it was it was in Texas, and it was like a high tech firm, you know. So uh, it it had probably about 150 employees, if if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And and the whole story, you know, it was about that there that these people were outside and they got their mortgages and they're ripping them up and they're burning them and it was uh, I thought that was great. You know, like not every company's going to do that, obviously, but that's the kind of appreciation that I think you know your previous caller he was just talking about. Like that's a like a big thank you, you know. Uh, Absolutely. So. so that's what I got to say on that one, buddy. All right. Thanks a lot, Walter. Yeah. Well, we still have time for a couple of calls here. 519-570-2545. Out of town, 1-800-570-5715 and star 570, hands-free. I think it was, I was reading this last week, a couple of weeks ago. Is, is it Disney? Disney World in Florida? was offering to pay at least part of the tuition. I don't know if they were going all out for everybody, but at least part of the tuition for, you know, their young employees who wanted to go to school and, you know, study this or that. So that I think that was Disney. I might be wrong on that. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and star 570. We're talking about a, a column that recently appeared on theconversation.com called Employees Not Only Want Better Pay, They Want Status. Randy, go ahead. How's it going? Good. I hope you got a raise. <laughs> I, this is only a temporary gig for me, but thank you, Randy. Matt, <laughs> and, and I miss your your lovely supervisor or not. Hmm? I, I miss your uh, supervisor. That, uh, you miss my supervisor? What do you... I, I don't, I don't, no, 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 no. Uh, the girl. Who used to answer the phones? No, no, no. I'm not... I'm really confused. <laughs> you answer the phone all the time. Right. No, the, no, the girl lives up in Trafford. Oh, Brittany. <laughs> Pardon me? That's Brittany, you mean. Producer Britt. And I... Right, yeah, she... She's, I, I, she's sick. Yeah, she's not feeling well. She actually... She texted me 
Uh, last night and said she she's, she's she is getting better. She's feeling a lot better. Uh, hope to have her back in the office here in the next couple of days. Uh, like her laugh. Yes, uh, lots. Of, we hear that a lot, Randy. Yeah. And I, I like her laugh. Yeah. Okay. You have a good day, my yeah, friend. You too. Thanks, Randy, for the call. Uh, we got Dave on the line. Dave, go ahead. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good. What can I do you for? Uh, a wise man once told me that, and you may disagree with it, but money is not a motivator. Okay. If you, if you got paid a dollar an hour more, would you work harder? <sighs> hmm. I already work pretty hard. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least I feel I do. That That is a really interesting, you, you know. You might, work, you might work hard for a couple of weeks and then you go right back to the same way you were. Yeah, maybe you're right on that. Yeah, money is not a motivator. I, yeah, I have not thought of that before, Dave. Yeah. And I, I kind of do, I kind of agree with it because, you know, I mean, you want to feel appreciated and get paid of course. what you're worth. But, you know, to say, okay, here, you've got, uh, I'm going to pay you a dollar, dollar fifty an hour more, and I want you to work harder. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it'll happen. Yeah, I, I guess, I don't know, me, going back to the original piece, maybe if I got paid a little bit more, maybe I would feel more appreciated because, I, I, as, you know, the uh, as our guest was saying with, with the article that, you know, getting paid more is, you know, can make you feel a little bit more appreciated and maybe you are a little bit happier at work. Uh, we still have lots to come up on the show here today at 2.30. Catherine uh, Villinga uh, will be here. She is the founder of Zerkova Vodka and they have pledged for the next little while 100% of their profits from the sale of their two vodkas at the LCBO going to Ukrainian humanitarian appeal funds in support of the people of Ukraine, uh, freedom and humanity. And Catherine is a native Ukrainian herself. And we'll ask her about that and, and you know, what motivated her to start her company. And, of course, this initiative where 100% of the profits from her vodkas are being donated to uh, Ukrainian humanitarian efforts. Time for the news. I'll be back after that. This is producer Paulie filling in on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Producer Paulie that's me in with you today until three o'clock. So Saturday morning, I'm lying in bed and you know, that's, you know, I'm a morning person. So my best ideas tend to come to me early in the morning. And I don't even think I had put my feet on the, on the floor yet. I'm tossing and turning in bed and you know, I was, was thinking about the show for Monday and I was thinking, you know, one of the one of the things I think that we've seen, particular, well, certainly with the the trucker protest in Ottawa, but really throughout the pandemic, is this, you know, how liberals and conservatives on, you know, different ends of the political spectrum define freedom. Because freedom to, to, to 
a liberal and freedom to a conservative are different things. So we will get into that. I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of hoping because it just seems that you know, you know, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, the other side is evil, and I don't know if that's necessarily the case. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe to, you know, maybe bring the two sides a little bit together with our next conversation here on Kitchener today, and to do that, we're bringing on Peter. Wollstonecraft. Of course, he is a uh, a retired political science professor. He's a professor emeritus at uh, you know, the University of Waterloo. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon and happy end of February. Yes, definitely. March is March starts tomorrow. <laughs> That's the best thing about February. It's a short month. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so normally we have you on to talk about, you know, specific things that are happening in the news that day and in the world of politics. But I wanted to have a little bit more of a, a general broad discussion today between, you know, you know, this disagreement that we see between, you know, conservatives and liberals. Now, how would you define, you know, broadly speaking, uh, you know, the modern liberal or the modern conservative? Well, interesting question, and it's hard to give a straightforward, simple answer. Uh, now, I, as I look at Canada in, in 2022, the Conservatives uh, are expressing the language of freedom, at least some of their leaders are, and we certainly had the convoy, trucker convoy, uh-huh. in Ottawa, and there was a lot of cries for freedom. And uh, so that, that's, to me, is a very kind of an American kind of thing, uh, but it's creeping into Canada. Uh, on, the, on the, as you say, the liberal side, uh, the equality argument, um, the, the, the issue is, is not so much anti-freedom, but how, how do people live a better life? There's a very famous essay uh, by a British, an Oxford philosopher by the name of Isaiah Berlin, uh, which dealt with with uh, two concepts of freedom. There's, there was a negative freedom and a positive freedom. Mm-hmm. Negative meant you could do what you want. And that's what the truckers seem to be saying. I want to do what I want. If I don't want to take a vaccine, then I don't take a vaccine. And uh, the, the positive uh, freedom says, okay, if, if you're healthy and come from a, a well-functioning family, then you can be set off well in life. But if you're not or there's issues in your life, then we have to have some kind of intervention. And let's say public education would be the vehicle to give people a better start, lift up in life, to level the playing field, to use the cliche. And so that's a justification for public education. There were a lot of people who were opposed to public education. Mm -hmm. They didn't see that it was of any benefit to them. Uh, But clearly, it's a benefit to many people in 2022 because it provides them with the the knowledge skills, the social skills to function in a complex society. So why does each side think their definition is the correct one? Oh, well, there you go. I mean, I would, uh, I would say, first of all, I don't believe in correct definitions. Uh, I believe that definitions are used by people to, to organize the world. Right, but in their mind's but, eye, yeah, they, their definition is the correct one. Yeah. yeah, so that's where I was going. So you people will say to me, well, he's not a true conservative, mm-hmm. or he's not a true liberal. Uh, and I say, well, you know, that's, a, that's actually a political argument in itself, because you're saying my views are, 
are the truth and yours are false, which I think is a wrong way to look at politics, so you need to have a discussion. I would say that what's happened in the last 50 or 60 years, but it's certainly been manifest in the last little while, is, is the view that what you think is unimpeachable and what the other p- people think is loathsome. So if that is the way you divide the world, it's very hard to get together. It's a bit like the Ukrainians and the Russians meeting on the border of Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, it's hard to see that they have much in common. And I, I think that in the time that I've been following politics, uh, which is almost 65, 70 years, that there has been, uh, particularly in North America, but in Europe as well, a, a separation of people so that people do not want to get along don't get along because their views are, as I say, irreproachable. You can't, you can't condemn them. The other views are loathsome, and it goes both ways. And so I think one of the great worries in societies I look at it is, is um, the, the failure to listen to other people. But this is a complex issue. Now, so I made some notes here. I said when we're talking about freedom, we're uh-huh. talking about uh, the market, uh, free enterprise, capitalism. You talk about equality, you talk mm-hmm. about the state. Well, here's a very simple example of the conflict between freedom and equality. Schools at one time were very much engaged in fundraising. So my neighborhood school, Empire School, had a lot of fundraising endeavors. And it comes from a community which is fairly well off and established, and they would raise a lot of money for the school. But are all schools in the same position to do that? Well, no, they're not. If you're in a low-income, newly arrived neighborhood, do they have the social capacity to raise money for the school? No, they don't. So the differences between schools are worsened by their ability to raise money themselves. So the argument is, well, no school should be able to raise money unless all schools are able to raise money. Uh Or we should raise taxes. If it's important, then we raise the taxes to do what we have to do. So there's the the freedom on the one side. Oh, well, everybody should be able to uh, raise money as they want in the school. And other people say, well, no, but that creates an inequality in our society, and that's a problem. Why are we inclined to think that the other side is evil? Well... Uh, I'm going to refer to uh, one of my favorite writers, a French socialist, Maurice Duverger, in his book, Political Parties. And he he makes the point that that people would sit in the public square, by which he meant the coffee shop or the, the, the beer par- tavern or the pub or wherever, and talk about things. And if you're talking to people eyeball to eyeball, side by each, and you're listening but also experiencing expounding on your views, you're, you're getting a sense of what the other people are thinking. And even though you may disagree at the moment, when you're going home, you say, well, you know, I see the point, or there's something going on there. So I ask, I ask people all the time, do you have conversations, or do you read things that are contrary to your presuppositions? Most of the time, people say to me, uh, well, I'm a man of the left, or I'm a woman of the left, and I only read stuff of the left. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, I'm a, a person of the right, I only read the people of the right. And, and why would I read all those other people? Because they're loathsome. And I said, well, that's the problem. That's precisely the problem. You're not understanding what the other people are thinking about the world. And, uh, you know, so... and. and my late wife used to call it yelling at the set. So people are not 
engaged with other people. They're just sitting in the, on their couch or Chesterfield yelling at the TV set because there's things that they don't like. Or some commentator whom they follow is egging them on to this point of view. We see that all the time, particularly in the United States, and I see it creep, creeping into Canada. Mm-hmm. So people have to have conversations. And the best thing to do is have three or four people around a coffee table and say, well, I think this, and I think that. Now, so I say to your listeners, how many of those conversations do you have? And if you have political interests, do you seek out people who, who disagree with you and have a discussion about those points of disagreement? Is there any common ground that we can find uh, especially in regards to freedom between the two sides? Well, an interesting interesting question. Um, I, I, I would argue that we need both. Uh, we need the cry for freedom. We need to hear the freedom. We have to understand that in a, in a liberal democratic society that we value freedom and we look at the fundamental rights is outlined or given in the charter. It talks about freedom of expression and so on. Those are essential features of our life. However, we have to understand that in a in a complex society, it's very unhealthy to have great uh, points of inequality from top to bottom, and and we're struggling with equality all the time. And that, and that uh, I used to say to my students, the defining feature of the last century, and these are some obvious ones you could talk about, but to me the, the defining feature of the last century was the legitimacy of the, of the, of the argument for equality. And before 1900, it wasn't much heard of. Uh, and, and since the early days of the 1900s, there were political parties and forces arguing for various forms of equality, like public education, mm-hmm. uh, like public health care, uh, like states uh, paid for pensions, all those kinds of things that were, which are hallmarks of the welfare state. Um, also, I, mean, I'm looking, I have in front of me, thinking about this, mm-hmm. a can of soup. And you're wondering, oh, where's he going with yeah. this? Well, there's, there's all the nutrition facts. And, uh, and my gosh, almighty, 37% of this is sodium, so I'm putting this stuff away. Mm-hmm. Um, that's information. <laughs> Everybody should have equal information on what's in a can of soup because it affects their health. And if you have a health condition, 37% of sodium is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And one time people didn't have that information, and the, the freedom people said, we should be free to put on our soup exactly what we put on, want to put on, and don't tell us that we have to tell people what's in there. And it was a big difference in people's lives because you see them in the, st- in, the st- in the stores looking at the labels going, oh, my goodness, 37% sodium and putting it back. But I think the counter argument to that, though, is if, if people wanted the health information, it just would have been provided, right, without, ooh, you know, without any sort of, you know, law saying that you had to do that. The, so a, well, you're, you're talking about a time in which now, uh, and I do this all the, every day, uh, I can Google information. Right, yeah, yeah. A long yeah. ago, that information wasn't available. And the only people who knew were people who were working in, in health labs, science labs, and took apart soup and said, oh, my right. God, 37% sodium. It wasn't known, and now everything that's on, on my shelf in my kitchen has a food ingredient. Mm-hmm. So I can get that information and make a decision, and that fits within the quality side of things rather than the freedom side of things. Mm-hmm. Do you think we are wired at birth with our politics, or is it the way we're raised, in people being influenced by people? Oh, I think it's people influencing people. I don't think we're hardwired. Um, it's, it's conversations. 
that you have coming out of the family, and then I think the, the social science research is pretty pretty strong on this, that the first work experiences have a lot to do. So let's say some, somewhere between the age of 18 to 25, depending when you finish your schooling. And then you start uh, to lose the illusions of family life and mm-hmm. what you hear around the table. I mean, I, I came out of a family that was somewhat libertarian, mm-hmm. and I became a very strong libertarian for too long a period, I confess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I worked and dealt with other people, I began to think differently about things. So I, I'm in the school that it's the first uh, first five to five years or so of work that really matter in terms of how one looks at the world. And as you get older, you tend to uh, shy away from new formulations and you play the game of the old ways are the good ways. So when it comes to these, you know, two sides, liberal and conservative, I I have the impression that the impression that the you know whatever side has of the other side is not accurate. I think a lot of you know people on the left, for instance, thinks that your average conservative still is you know Bible thumping, traditional family values, gays can't marry. Now I'm supposed there's still some of those around, but it, I I have a feeling it's not as much as it used to be maybe 40 years ago. Yeah, I, I think I think you make a very vital point, um, and and, uh, and and the point is this: that people are much more complex than their labels are. And it was a, a French scholar who taught me this. And what he said was, if you, if you read the other French scholars, they will tell you the left is this, blah, 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 and the right is this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And there were these polar opposites. And then the left parties and the right parties uh, repeat this rhetoric and this analysis. And what they forget is the most French people are not put into these categories. Sometimes they're left and sometimes they're right. Mm-hmm. And if you listen and talk to people, you realize that actually they're much more complex and much less fixed in their views than the stereotypes would have it. Peter, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Peter uh, Wollstonecroft is a professor emeritus at the uh, University of Waterloo, uh, former political science professor. We have time for a couple of calls on what you just heard, you know, trying to bring everybody together. Why can't we just love each other? Manny, go ahead. I've been pretty clear, Polly. I love everybody equally. <laughs> yeah. Until Uh-oh. they want to trample on my humanity, right? Then mm-hmm. I got to stand up for myself. And I think that, you know, for me, when I hear about the talk about freedom and stuff like that, I, I, I mean, it's very, very important. And the people who think, who get rights and uh, privileges conflated, um, I think need to have a deeper look at what freedom actually means and what those two things mean. Um, the one part, there's a, one specific thing that's been happening during COVID that I, I really have a difficult time coming to terms with. And, and this is the one that, you know, where, where I have a problem um, with the whole rights and privileges thing is until COVID, um, everybody was saying, or maybe one, I don't want to say one side of the political spectrum, because I don't think political spectrum is just strictly left and right anymore yeah there's it, more it, to it yeah yeah there's it's it's a matrix right like there's there's an x and a y axis right and maybe a z one too if you really want to go uh, go there but um before covid it was very strictly two things my body my choice and no means no mm-hmm. um covid changed that and people have their reasons and that's that's okay but the, what's the core of those arguments right and 
is that where freedom lies? Because when you talk about freedom, I mean, the freedom to uh, put anything or, or deny anything uh, in our bodies, is that's about all we have left. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Manny, for the call. Yeah, I mean, the political spectrum, I think, is it's often presented as being two dimensional. You know, you have left and right. There's there's some other, you know, political surveys out there. You can, you know, number of different sites, you can take them. You know, there's one that I saw one time called the Nolan chart. And it ranks people, I think it's a very quick, quick, I think there's like 10 questions on it or something covering both uh, economic and social issues. And it, it has both an X axis and a Y axis. It's, it's very interesting. Jason, go ahead. Good afternoon, Paulie. Uh, I'm going to say they didn't really sound like he was talking about two different types of freedom there. Because uh-huh. there's the personal freedom to live your life the way you want. And then people do good on the collective for each other anyways in their own communities and stuff and, and all that. But that's a freedom of choice. Uh-huh. Everything's like that. So there's the personal freedom. And then the other thing he was talking about was the collectivism which is actually anti-freedom because collectivism is more of a Karl Marx from the communist book of man or the, the communist manifesto mm-hmm. of everything's for the collective. It's all for the greater good, which we've seen throughout history. The, the greatest evils of all time have been done for the greater good. Mm-hmm. It's always for the greater good. They're never like, Oh, well, we're going to go do this for a horrible reason. It's always for the better, for the betterment of humanity. We're going to, we're going to gas millions of people for the betterment of this. We're going to do it. Like, Oh, oh, sorry, I didn't. I, <laughs> my my finger slipped a little bit sooner than I wanted, but I think I got the general gist of, uh, of what you were saying, Jason. Although that was one of the things I was trying to get at in the interview with uh, Peter Wollstonecroft is that I, I, you know, when you hear about not. <laughs> You know, conservatives will think that oh, well, if, if liberals had their way, we'd all be living in North Korea. I don't think that's true. It's I think perception and reality of how we see our political opponents are sometimes not nearly the same thing. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. We can't solve all the world's problems in only 30 minutes, but we can at least try. <laughs> Thanks uh, to Peter Wollstonecroft. Uh, Professor Emeritus from of Political Science from the University of Waterloo, joining us to discuss this idea I had on Saturday morning when I woke up, that the definition that liberals have and the definition that conservatives have of freedom is completely different. And that seems to, uh, th- that might be at the heart of some of the political divide that we've seen in the last at least couple of years, but maybe going on prior to that. Well, coming up next, how your purchase of vodka can help the Ukrainian humanitarian effort. That's up next. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Producer Pauly in with you today on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Zerkova Vodka pledges 100% of all profits from Zerkova Vodka sales at the LCBO to Ukrainian humanitarian appeal efforts in support of the people of Ukraine, freedom, and humanity. Catherine Balinga, he is CEO and founder of 
Zerkova Vodka joins us this afternoon. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, now, Catherine, you are, as I understand it, a Canadian-Ukrainian. What are your thoughts on what's happening right now? Um, yeah, so I'm a uh, first generation, born in, in Canada, and um, um, so my thoughts about what what is happening is, of course, you know, we've gone from feeling absolutely heartbroken, heartbroken, devastated, outraged, and then finally we just said we have to do something. We we can't stand by, and um, and then we've got into action, and and as so many people have as well. So, you know, I just want to thank all of your viewers because so and listeners, sorry, for for everything that they've done for for the outpouring of support that we've seen at a very difficult time. So tell me about your company, Zerkova Vodka. Well, I think you'll be uh, surprised to know that we're a Canadian company and it actually started in Kitchener-Waterloo. Wow. Because my husband and I, yes, so my husband is born and raised in Kitchener-Waterloo and uh, we met at University of Waterloo Systems Design Engineering and the two of us were just you know, pursuing careers in corporate Canada when um, the Soviet Union fell. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, you know, my, my twin sister moved to Ukraine and we ended up moving to Ukraine almost, geez, almost 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's when our entrepreneurial life began. So, yeah, while there, we, we ended up discovering that the actual birthplace of vodka is in modern day Ukraine. I had no idea. Share what we found out with the world. Yeah. Yeah. So it has very much of a local connection. So we're a Canadian brand, but we, you know, of course, we distill at the the origins and birthplace and distill 100% in Ukraine. Now, uh, you have many fellow Ukrainians working for your company. How have recent events affected them? Oh, it's, it's affecting everybody, of course. I mean, the, you know, the, Everybody, everybody that works with us, um, everybody that works for us. I mean, you know, people have been, in terms of the actual distilleries, of course, it's, you know, nobody's thinking about operating. Um, All of them, the most of the workers have joined the territorial defense units. I mean, they've got bomb shelters and, and they're, they're, They've got a basement area that people gather when there's sirens and raids. And then, of course, we have, um, you know, a lot of our own people that are, we're trying to, you know, in Kiev as well, that have either moved outside of the city or are in the city. I have family in Kiev, so I've, I've been talking to them as well. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you know, the entire community knows someone or is helping someone or, I mean, that's, that's the reality. Now, recently the LCBO has pulled Russian vodka from its shelves. Uh, Is this going to make a difference? What are your thoughts on that? You know, when I heard about that, um, I would rather not be in this situation at all. Mm -hmm. You know, if there had not been a Russian invasion, we would not even be discussing this. And, um, you know, what I feel about it is that 
I'm really calling my industry to come to the table with me, to join me. I don't think it's right that the industry profits from the boycotting of Russian vodkas. And it's really Ukraine that needs our help. So that's really where we've directed mm-hmm. our efforts. Okay, so now on to the good news. Your company is pledging 100% of uh, profits from its vodka sales to help uh, humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. So expand on that. Yeah, so so um, late last week, uh, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, which is really the umbrella organization of um, all the Ukrainian-Canadian organizations across the country, and the Canada-Ukraine Foundation started a humanitarian appeal fund. I mean, Canada-Ukraine Foundation has over 30 years of helping conduct and deliver humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So we wanted to help in any way that we could. So how long will this be going on for? Right now, we're just, we're trying to survive for as long as we have product. Mm -hmm. And um, um, right now, we're holding this campaign at least to the end of March. Now, this is uh, for the LCBO locations. Is your vodka available anywhere else, or is this just an LCBO uh, promotion? Well, actually, we sell our vodka only at the LCBO. Okay, well, there you go. (laughs) Uh, So tell me about the different vodka drinks that you produce. I think you have two in your your line, right? Well, you know, in, in happier times, we had... You know, the, the pleasure of being on your radio station and actually speaking about Zirkova and that we had done something very different for the industry. We're really about honoring all of the different ways that people love to experience vodka. Mm-hmm. So we have Zirkova 1 for sipping. And uh, Zirkova Together is revolutionary in that it takes any mix and engages with it, amplifies the flavor, and makes it do like tastes better and not boozier. So it's quite unique, and we have the two available at the LCBO. Catherine, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on, and thank you to all of your listeners for everything that they're doing in this time. No problem. Thanks. Uh, Catherine Valinga, she is CEO and founder of Zerkova vodka so you heard it right there for, for at least now until the end of march and who knows maybe they'll extend it but for, certainly for uh, uh now to the end of march zirkova vodka pledges a hundred percent of all its profits from their vodka sales at the lcbo and the lcbo is the only place you can get uh zirkova vodka uh they're pledging a hundred percent of profits to the ukrainian humanitarian appeal funds in support of the people of Ukraine. So, uh, very nice initiative, and I had no idea that Zirkova Vodka had a local connection. That is very, very cool. Now, to wrap up the uh, the show here, I want to go back to something that Mike Farwell and I were talking about between 12 and 12.30 during our Between Two Hosts segment, and it really lit up the phones, and we just ran out of time. So I'd like to, I guess, bring this topic back, if you want. And it was inspired by a, um, a topic I saw pop up on, th- on Reddit recently, and the topic was, what is your current favorite children's TV show? And I'm not from like, the names that were being rhymed off there, I've never even heard of any of them. I... <laughs> 
<laughs> like Teen Patrol or something like that. I don't even know any of these. But I decided to kind of, you know, turn that around a little bit because obviously we all were kids at one point. So what were your favorite TV shows growing up when you were a kid? 519-570-2545. Out of town, one 800 570 5715 and Star 570 hands free. I have a number of different shows depending on how old I was. Obviously the the shows I watched when I was, you know, 5 or 6, I probably wasn't watching them when I was 9 or 10. You know, you tend to to grow out of certain things and you pick up new things and uh you know, I'm going to go over a list of some of mine and if you want to uh uh you know, chime in on that as well you can as well 519-570-2545 out of town 1-800-570-5715 and star 570 what were your favorite television shows when you were a kid rudy go ahead yeah one of my favorite shows was uh and i actually met him was littlest hobo you met the dog yes oh that is so cool he was, it was the dog called London, mm-hmm. and he was at Ferry Mall once and was back in the, in the 60s, somewhere in the 60s. In the, I, I remember the Littlest Hobo being on in the 80s. Were those reruns or, 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 or what? Well, originally they were black and white. Were there multiple dogs then? I can't imagine the dog yeah. in the 60s was still doing it in the 80s. They must have changed the dog at some point. Yeah, they did. They had several dogs through the park through time. Huh. I had no idea that that show started in the 60s. Thanks, Rudy. You're quite welcome. I, it was great. I wish I could still find it, but I can't find it. There might be some episodes on YouTube or something. You never know what's on there. Yeah, that's true. All right, check it out. Yeah, I, I watched The Littlest Hobo a little bit in the 80s. What I loved about The Littlest Hobo was the theme song. And we've talked about theme songs on with uh, Mike Farwell a number of times. The, the theme song to The Littlest Hobo was, was just the best. Well, whatever TV show was on right before that, I would continue watching because The Littlest Hobo came on right after that. And I wanted to hear the theme song to The Littlest Hobo. So we're having a little bit of fun here as we wrap up the show today. What were your favorite television shows when you were a kid? 519 570 2545 out of town 1-800-570-5715. Aaron, go ahead. My favorite show was The Flintstones. Yep. I loved it. Uh on the weekend my daughter saw Fruity Pebbles in the grocery store <laughs> and uh she wanted to try them so I bought them for her and at the checkout the cashier says, "Oh, do you like The Flintstones?" And she admitted, she goes, I don't know who the Flintstones are, and I've never seen them. So everyone <laughs> around us felt old. She just wanted the colorful cereal. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, the Flintstones is one. Now, I mean, that was, when was the original run of the Flintstones? Uh, 50s, maybe 60s, I think. Uh, I'm way too young to remember that. But I, they were in reruns well into the the 80s and maybe even early 90s. I'm sure you could still find it today on some of the, you know, the TV shows or the TV channels that show those older, uh, you know, those older TV shows. The Flintstones, I never quite got into that. It was, it was all right, but I don't know. It never really appealed to me, but thanks for the call. 
Sam, go ahead. Hey, uh, Paul, I'm an 80s child. Yes. So, I think we're going to be in the same vintage then. Yeah, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Family Ties. Tom yes. Those are all great shows for me. Yes. I always got mixed up between Transformers and Thundercats. I was more of a Thundercats <laughs> guy. Well, that was a good one, too. And same <laughs> as, um, oh, what's it called? I forget. Yeah, Thundercats is good, too. Oh, He-Man. Oh, He-Man. Yes, I watched that one, too, a little bit. Yes, He-Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. We're talking about some of your favorite childhood TV shows. Les, go ahead. Hi, Paul. Uh, I'm a bit older than you, but my favorite was Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes. I've never seen that one. I mean, I've, I've heard of it, but I don't even think I've even seen one yeah, second of one episode. Great parody on World War II, uh, both the Germans and everything. It was mm-hmm. real funny. All right, cool. Okay. Thanks, Les. Yep. Okay. Thank Bye. you. 519-570-2545, out of town, 1-800-570-5715, and Star 570, talking about some of your favorite childhood TV show. I haven't even told you any of mine yet, because the phone lines are going crazy. Hugh, go ahead. Hi, how are you, Paul? Good. Um <clears throat> First of all, I'd like to say you're doing a great job. Thank you. And my favorite uh, shows as a uh, child were Howdy Doody, mm-hmm. uh, My Friend Flecka, which was about a horse. I've never even heard of that one. Okay. And Sky King. Sky King. Never heard of that one either. Yeah, well, that was about a pilot that flies around. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what it was about, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was good. And uh, I hope you continue doing this show. You're just great. Oh, great. Thanks, Hugh. That's, that, that, that's, that's very nice of you. Much appreciated. Terry, go ahead. Hey, Paulie, how are you doing? Good. Hey, listen, I know Mike was uh, razzing you about your theme song last week. <laughs> yes. Uh, was it Get Ready for This? Yeah, Too Unlimited. Was that what it's called? Even. Yeah, the band <laughs> is called Too Unlimited. The song is Get Ready for This. It was a hit in the early 90s, 91. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've heard. Listen, if you if you if you get the gig, or if you're interested, you should consider because you know you you know you have that intimidating, deep baritone voice. Oh yes, I don't know what you're talking about, Terry. <laughs> Go ahead. It was a song by Oreo Speedwagon. It came out of their uh, High Infidelity album back I think mm-hmm. eighty or something. Like that. Tough guys. That's what you should use. Tough guy. It's called Tough Guy. <laughs> I don't know Look that one. Look it up. I think it was on that album. It'd be perfect because you know you got that. Intimidating voice. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, the, the, the earlier caller, Hogan's Heroes, was a classic, and of course the Flintstones. The one, the one I used to love, my it was in black and white. It was, it was, uh, they they uh, aired that originally in the fifties. Was the original Superman with George Reeve? Oh Jim, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that? clips of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the one I liked. They had on I think back in right back in the seventies. They used to show it about four o'clock on ABC. There, yeah. on Channel Seven from Buffalo, but, uh, yeah, that was, those were probably the ones. And the Flintstones, I think you, you were mentioned, I think the Flintstones ran from originally from 60 to 66. They had like a five or six year mm-hmm. run, but that, that was a good one too. Yeah. So cool. Thanks, okay, Terry. Okay, Paulie, thanks. Thank you. Uh, Joel, go ahead. Uh, Hey Paul, I just wanted to echo what some of the other callers said. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you. Uh, also a child of the eighties. Um, when I was talk to young, me, Joel, <laughs> when I was young, it was uh, uh, Polka Dot Door. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Polkaroo. And uh, the other one would be the real Ghostbusters. 
animated series. Real Ghostbusters. I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was a big one. That's where all the uh, toys, all the... the was that a cartoon? Uh, it was a cartoon, and it was... Uh, I remember it was a pretty big cartoon. Wow. I must have missed that one. Yeah, there was that. And then maybe when I was a little bit older, it was uh, the Batman animated series. Right. Yes, yes. I think I do remember that one. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks, Joel. Already. You know, something really embarrassing about Polka Dot Door. This is this is terrible. So at the end of every episode, because, you know, there would be two hosts. I don't know if they had two regular. Anyway, whatever. They had two hosts. And at the end of the episode, near the end of the episode, the Polkaroo would show up. You know, big mascot thing. And the, the show always ended with the other host coming into the, you know, the scene going, oh, the Pokeroo was here. I missed him again. It never occurred to me until many, 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 many years later that the host who wasn't there was the person who was in the Pokeroo costume. I never picked up on that at the time. How terrible is that? John, go ahead. Hey, Polly, how's it going? Good. Do you have a favorite TV show when you were a kid? I do, but before I get to that, I'm going to echo again what everybody else is saying. Good job. Thank you. Good question, though. Why last week we can't access the archives to Kitchener today? Do you know why? Mm, on the website? Yeah. They should tried, be there. On, they're not available. I tried listening on the weekend. On the weekends, usually, but hmm. anyhow, maybe you can look into that. Yeah, I'll look into that because usually when I'm doing my technical job, I'm the one who posts that up. I'll I'll look into that for you, John. Thanks a lot. I I, I don't get to listen all week, so I usually yeah. do it on the weekends. Anyways, okay, cartoons, eighties, yep. uh, born late seventies, eighties kid, mm-hmm. probably like you, so for sure, yeah, Transformers, Thundercats, yada yada, but Robotech, hundred percent. Robotech, Vol- I don't I don't remember that one. Robotech it was. It's also called Macross, for those that know it. Okay. Uh, I loved Saber Rider and the Star Sheriffs, and especially Voltron. And the remake on Netflix is phenomenal. It's about seven or eight seasons, and it's mm-hmm. really, really well done. We you must have been watching story. some different shows. I don't remember any of those. <laughs> no, you got to go back. And yeah, listen. great. Thanks, John. Uh, you got a time for a couple of more here. Lorraine, go ahead. I was from quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. We didn't have TV. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Did they even have TV no, back we then? Didn't listen to the radio. Yeah, we were. I was allowed to watch to listen to Fibber McGee and Molly. Yeah, not allowed to listen to, but I did. The <laughs> Shadow nose. Yes, spooky one. <laughs> and then um, later, but then every Saturday after morning. Saturday morning, we always went to the Odeon, Moody, Odeon Movie Theater, mm-hmm. and we watched Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and Gene Autry and Tom Mix, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But that was just like, that was just on the, Great. down at the theater. But my son, now he um, was on th- that Kitchener station where... Um, Oh, CKCL. Was he on uh, Romper Room? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know somebody who was on Romper Room, too. <laughs> oh, is that right? That was Miss, uh, what's her name? Betty. Right, Betty Betty, uh, Betty Thompson. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very active. And now my little great-grandson watches Paw Patrol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard of that one. <laughs> so a lot of history. Great, great, cool. Thanks, Lorraine. 
All right, Steve, we have 30 seconds. What was your favorite shows? Uh, hi, Paulie. Uh, one of my favorite shows is I used to come home from lunch and watch uh, Big Al's Cartoon Capers. Okay. And and then uh, when I used to come home at the end of the day, it was Gilligan's Island. Yeah, all right, cool. Thanks, Steve. Uh, we will take a break here, and we'll be back to wrap this thing up. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Back for just another couple of minutes here. Now, I said I was going to uh, mention what my favorite TV shows were. I was born in the late 70s and really kind of grew up in the 80s. So, uh, the Hammy Hamster was my first favorite television show. And it was a live action show with an actual hamster. They put him in a little boat and send him down, down, down a river and filmed it. And I <laughs> can't believe it. Uh, there was a cartoon, Hercules. Now, I think... That one was also one of those ones in the same way as the Flintstones. I think it was originally done in the uh, 60s, maybe even the 50s, but they ran reruns in the 80s. There was this show that was on um, TV Ontario called Today's Special, filmed at the uh, what is now the Bay in downtown Toronto. And it was about uh, uh, basically what happens in this department store overnight. There was a lady who her job was a set designer. She changes around the sets. And uh, there were a couple of different characters on that show, including a mannequin who is a mannequin during the day, but at night he comes alive when you, you know, say the magic words, but he's never allowed to leave the store. So I remember that one. Uh, there was one a little when I was a little bit older, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, 12, when YTV first started up, you can't do that on television. Remember that show with the green slime? Alanis Morissette was on that show for a handful of episodes, in case you didn't know that. Well, it's time to wrap this thing up. It's been a pleasure hosting Kitchener today for uh, really for the last uh, the last five episodes. And uh, stay with us. We've got some guest hosts starting tomorrow. And hey, I'll never say never. You might hear me back at some point. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570.